latest episode of Claw's Corner. Today's guests include director, screenwriter, producer, and novelist Gorman Bouchard, producer and sound recorder Katie Bolding, and producer, editor, and cinematographer Faith Merrick. They are currently working on three documentaries for What Were We Thinking Films, which is a fiercely independent production company that focuses on independent narrative features and genre-breaking documentaries. So there's a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. Gorman, Katie, Faith, welcome to the Claw's Corner. Thank you for Hi. having us. Hi. All right. Hi. All right. So I want to start with one of my, you're doing a documentary in one of my all-time favorite places. I first heard about this place, I want to say 91, 92. And for anybody that thinks that video stores are obsolete and there's none around, this documentary is going to break all those taboos. It's going to break, it's going to break some ground with this one because your upcoming film is entitled Best Video, The Movie. So uh, how long have you been working on that? Well, we started our very first, our very first interview was with Hank Paper, which is where it should start uh, because that Hank started the place in 1985. Uh, and my God, when do we, I think we filmed that like the very last day of July or something. It was like July 29th or 30th or something. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was the beginning. And we started putting together our faith started putting together a trailer. Um, so we can do the very first Kickstarter. Uh, and the movie has sort of evolved a lot since we started uh, interviewing people from Best Video, uh, because one of the things that Hank mentioned was Scarecrow Video, uh, which is, okay, what's Scarecrow Video? Scarecrow Video is a store in Seattle that has 146,000 titles. That's 100,000 more than Best Us. Wow. It's the largest film archive, largest video store, whatever you want to call it, on the planet. And so we started going on road trips to also take in all of these massive stores. And there aren't a lot of them uh, around the country. And sort of this is turning into a love story, not only of cinema, but of physical media and how these stores really represent the future of film preservation. I love it because I'm 55 years old, so I grew up when videos were first coming out in the in the 80s. I used to love all the video stores, and I loved always more than Blockbuster, more than Planet Hollywood. I always loved the mom and pop stores because they had selections that nobody would even think of carrying, stuff you can get, and I I miss those days. I love That's why I love Best Video, which is in Hamden, Connecticut, for people who live in the Connecticut area. It's a great place. Uh, I just go in there and just talk to people. I and the staff is so great because not only are they so knowledgeable, they live and they breathe movies. Sometimes they'll go in there and say, "You know what? What do you recommend?" And I've never ever had a bad recommendation from them. They're always like, "Because they have." We're going to talk about this. It's, it's been around since you mentioned Hank Paper opened the place in 1985, and from what I was reading, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He started with about 500 movies. And right now, as you mentioned, right. it's up to like 40,000 plus, which is a lot of movies. And I love the fact with it's it's done by sections. You have director session done by genre, done by best of the best, Oscar winners, Oscar losers, foreign movies, uh, martial arts. I mean, it has something for everybody. And a lot of these movies you can't get on streaming. Some people say, oh, what do you need to go to a video store? You can get on streaming. A lot of these movies you can't. And that's what I think makes this place one of the many things that makes this place so special. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if Faith has really been doing a lot of work with that as well in terms of <clears throat> her hatred of the algorithm. 
So yeah, Faith, tell me about it. So are you the, was it, you're the one that came up with the idea to do a documentary on this? Uh, no, no, I can't entirely remember it. The idea came up, I think before me or just as I was joining, uh, but it was a much smaller project at first. It was yeah. much more localized to just best video. Um, and then, you know, we filmed Hank and I made my trailer and things just started to really blossom. It, it, the story really looked much bigger all of a sudden. And we're like, let's pursue it. Let's do this. Now, what about you, Katie? When did you get on board? Um, I came on board, I think, when it was kind of a, a twinkle in the eye. Um, Corman had approached me in the summer and he's like, hey, I have this this project. It might be kind of small, um, but you know, I'm hoping that you'll you'll come on um, whenever we're ready to do it. And I was like, yeah, you know, of course, whatever you need. And and yeah, it's been really fun to kind of watch it turn into, hey, do you want to jump onto this project with me to you know this much bigger story than we ever thought it would be. Yep. Well, I mentioned in the intro that it's uh, what were we thinking films? Which Gorman, you started. Are yes. all three of you part of that production company? Yes. You are? Yeah. And what year did you start that? Uh, the production company started uh, for the film You Are Alone in 2004. So this is our 20th anniversary. April 4th will actually be our 20th anniversary of incorporation. All right. Well, right now it's the end of January. So happy anniversary, everybody. Thank you. And I love the work you're doing. I love the movies that you that come out of your production company. Uh so with this, with um, best video of the movie, you uh, you mentioned that you go to some other video stores. Um, I did see a documentary on the last blockbuster. Is that still around? Did you go? Did you visit that? We we did visit that in Bend, Oregon. Um, interesting place to visit. Um, I think one of the uh, proofs that blockbuster really was dying is that ninety percent of this stores. Uh, revenue comes from sale, sales of merchandise. Uh, they really aren't renting films. Yeah. Well, talk, that, no, that, that's interesting because that's why I want to talk about why Best Video is still thriving because not only is it a video store, it's so much more. I mean, it's a, they call it the Best Video and Cultural Center. I go there, the, I was there a couple weeks ago, I saw a documentary that was running and then I went there three or four days later, they were at Jazz Night. Several years ago, 2015, I used to do comedy. I put on a comedy show there. So it's not just videos. They have a great place, a cafe. You can get wine, coffee, whatever you want, water. And then they have bands, food. It's, that's, and that's, I think, do the other video stores that you visited, including Blockbuster, are they doing something similar to keep it moving or to keep it going? Or is it just some of the, the other places mostly just renting movies and selling movies? <laughs> um faith what i mean you were there i mean what are you saying i mean um i think that a lot of the stores that we visited dabbled you know they they kind of tried to maybe have not a cultural center as our best video does but maybe like screenings like they tried regular screenings yeah. you know having a mini theater maybe within the store if they could kind of fit it into a corner um but that's something that makes best video like unique uh is what they're doing i want to go back to the beginning 1985 hank paper opened up was he always just the sole owner he was the sole owner up until probably around 20 
14 when they started uh they needed they realized they had to become a not-for-profit mm-hmm. yeah was it always in the same location no it's been in four locations ah. it was in a very small 300 square foot space just down from the little hardware store on Whitney Avenue. Mm -hmm. Then it moved to where it is now, but it was just occupying the corner of the space, sort of where the travel agent is. Then it moved to the uh, next to the Walgreens also on, it was always on Whitney Avenue. And then after many years at the Walgreens, it finally moved to where it is now. Okay. Well, let's talk about another Hank. He's the one I know more. Hank Hoffman. Who is he? Hank Hoffman is a long, long time employee, uh, and also I believe he's been the board president for a while. I think I, I think he was, and I also uh, was he also executive director. Faith, do you remember? I mean, they all had so many different interchanging titles. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I think so. And and Hank is just yeah, you're right. I mean, when I think of best video going, because I've lived in the neighborhood since. 1994 this is my 30th year and when i think of best video i think of four people and and it's basically hank hoffman hank paper richard brown and mike wheatley those were the those are the four that you just always saw there yeah you know what's funny because i said i've been going there probably around since 92 and those are the four i think of all time i love it whenever i go there you see in the movie hank's pick and it's another one where i said let me see hank likes this movie and i've never been disappointed and it's, it's it's great um, so it became a nonprofit and Hank finally retired. Who took yes. over? Who, who's running the uh, best video now? Well, uh, it's, it's actually the executive director right now is Julie Brown. Uh, and, uh, no, Julie Smith. I'm sorry. Julie Smith. Yeah. Julie Smith. And, um, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, and she is doing an amazing job. I mean, the place is beautiful now. I mean, the, the, what she's done with the, the, the that, center room for when you come in and get a coffee great willoughby's coffee and then you sit down and there are just so many wonderful places to sit it's very welcoming i think it's it's she's it's beautiful now that is the best word to say because and i love the fact that i, I go there I, I live in farmington's which is about 40 minute drive for me but i just love it and i go there and she'll say rich how are you doing i mean i don't go there even that often but she knows exactly who i am she's oh yeah you saw this you want you know, what else do you want i mean like you said they're very welcoming they're very knowledgeable and it's so much more than just a video. It's almost like for the people that go there, it's like family getting together. You talk about movies, you talk about different things going on in the world. It's like a, a get together for everybody. They just hang out and some, they get they get their drink and say, "All right, I'll see you see you next week." And I love that about this place. And yeah, she is a great addition to uh, Best Video. And I, I like the fact that she's. It seems like the. I mean, Hank always put on some great shows, but it seems like lately they're she's starting to learn how to monetize it more before people were just walking in. And now she's like, you know, eh, here's a donation, $10. And it's well worth, you know, I mean, I saw the jazz bands I mentioned the other day and it was well worth way more than $10. So I, I love the fact, I think she's a great addition. She's doing a great job and everybody loves her. So I'm, I'm looking forward to years and years of this place thriving. Hopefully fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I want you you mentioned you found this place in 1994 I want all of your reactions on this when you first walked in there what was your first reaction I'll start with you Gorman oh when I first walked in uh we had moved to the area and we heard about this place we walked in my wife and I we spent about two hours walking around could not this to agree on any one film but we were so overwhelmed we finally just left 
empty handed because we needed it at that point. We needed a drink. It was like this. The, the, it was not a real place for us. It was yeah. like this could not exist in Connecticut, but it did. Yeah. And what about you, Faith? Uh, I think the first time I walked into Best was probably in 2010. Um, and I was living in Naugatuck at the time with my boyfriend. Uh, I I grew up around video stores all the time. I worked at Tommy K's. Um, my mom worked at Tommy K's before me. So they definitely had a special place in my heart. And um, when I walked in, it was just, it, it was awesome. You know, th the fact that you go in and find so many obscure titles and so many like obscure kind of genres, like their cult section is awesome. <laughs> I just, I believe that's one of the first places my boyfriend and I at the time like went to look was like their cult section um, because we were pretty addicted to, uh, we had Comcast at the time and they had this on-demand channel called Something Weird. And mm -hmm. we would just watch all those old like black and white PSAs and weird clips and stuff. And uh, we also found a lot of that at best. So best is awesome. <laughs> it oh, yeah. just it leaves such an impression. There's no other way to put it. What about you, Katie? Um, I went uh, pretty recently. I, I lived in California for a while, moved back to Connecticut pretty recently and uh, I live in Bristol so I think that's right around where you are yeah um so I actually didn't go in there until I had met Gorman um but when I walked in like it was honestly just a, a wave of nostalgia um mm -hmm. you know I grew up going to Blockbuster every weekend or you know the little mom and pop store before it closed down and just to kind of walk in there and see these shelves of videos to see these people you know it was, it's so simple, but just putting those movies back onto the shelf, um, the popcorn and the candy by the register. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just really special and it was really nice to just kind of experience something I never thought I would again in a physical media store. Yeah, no, exactly. So how, where did they get this collection from? Where do they get all these movies from? Do, I, I mean, these, uh, this has just been films they've been acquiring. So yeah. Uh, and a lot of those stores have different stories on that, but in, in, in terms of best, I think this is just what they've been, you know, they buy everything that comes out. Yeah. And well, when you've been in business for 30 years, it starts adding up. Well, I can tell you this, and this has happened several times and it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while I'll, I'll see something that I want to check out and I'll go up to the desk and I, they're like, I can't find it. You know what? Give me three days. Three days later, I get a text, Rich, the movie's here. Come pick it up every single time they always find it for me if it's not in the store they'll get it for me within three days and i love that but yeah 97 98 of the time like oh yeah right over there and they have it for you i mean i've never ever really seen a time where if i if they couldn't get the movie they'll get it or i can never find a movie they they have as all three of you mentioned they have something for everybody so i'm definitely so let's talk about the kickstarter when um you said you're starting the second phase of kickstarter for this yes it's going to launch on uh this uh launch on on friday which is uh january 26th um and run for uh, around 60 days All right and where can people go to um if they want to donate it best video documentary.com that'll take you right to the kickstarter Very and they good. can also see the trailer uh they can see me begging for money <laughs> Uh, in, in a video uh, uh, where my hair looks way too gray. And um, 
you know, and uh, yeah, and and there are tons of great rewards, and we've even added rewards for all of the other stores. So uh, if you happen to be listening to this and you're in the Pacific Northwest, you can get tickets to the Portland or Seattle uh, world premiere. And when do you expect this to be released? Eventually. Eventually, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I- getting bigger, so we don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah. no, yeah. definitely. Quality takes time. Don't want to rush this. But I like, mean, let's put it this way: it'll it will it'll take longer than my Lydia Lovelace documentary, which took nine months, and it'll take less than my pizza documentary, which took eleven years. Somewhere <laughs> in the middle. Somewhere in between. All right. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to it. As I mentioned in the intro, you currently have three documentaries that you're working on. The second one. And you mentioned this when I met you several weeks ago, and I said I want to interview interview you. And I was doing my research. I was like, "Wow, I did not realize this. I've been in that area so many times. I want to talk about it. it's about the New Haven Clock Company." Oh, okay. So yeah, that that one's been in the works for a while. Um, that that's a film that we started. My God, in 2018, I believe it was. Um, and it seemed like a perfect story to tell because I have a fascination with old buildings uh and this is this massive beautiful old building you know 150,000 square feet has a crazy history it goes back 200 years and it was about to be turned into low-cost artist housing Mm -hmm. and then sort of things started happening with the developer that weren't great and COVID hit and it all sort of went to hell um and so we have a rough cut of the film, but we didn't have an ending because I'm like, is this going to get knocked down? Is something going to happen with? There was no longer any buyer. And I didn't I didn't want to put out a film with no ending. So I've sort of been waiting. And it seems now like the housing authority of uh, New Haven is going to be purchasing the building. I think that that's all in the works right now to turn it into low cost housing, which would be great because at least the building will then, you know, uh, be turned into something new as opposed to being knocked down. Because otherwise, it's starting to fall apart. And I I, I really was fearful that the movie was going to end with the wrecking ball. Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize that when I was doing my research, it's located on 133 Hamilton Street. Mm-hmm. Back in the 80s, I was in metal bands. All my friends were metal bands. I used to play the Brick and Wood Cafe yep. all the time. Now, yeah, we have a nice section about the Brick and Wood in the film. I can't wait to see it. I saw the trailer for it, and I don't want to get into details, but unfortunately, I was at the infamous Gigi Allen show. I don't know why, and it was a scary time, but I, I, I played there. My bands played there at least eight or nine times. All my friends, I was there almost every weekend. So it was that building, which I, I, I drove by there the other day. I think it's a loft now. It's lofts. I could be wrong, but that's what, what where, with the clock factor. No, it's nothing. Well, no, but where uh, the Brickenwood was, was that part of the, no, that was, that was in, that was right. The, where the Brickenwood was is where the strip bars were scores. It was the last strip bar there. Okay. So that, all the bars were always in that corner. So, uh, yeah, going back before, before the five or so strip bars, uh, the, uh, Brickenwood was the one previous to that. There was also a, there was also a very famous gay bar called, um, called, uh, Kurtz, um there was uh, a country western bar there i mean there were so many different things in that space okay so for you we'll talk about the brick and we'll get back to the clock factory or clock company but for you did you used to uh frequent the brick one back in the uh, late 80s early 90s a little i was already out of my punk period i used to frequent 
Ron's place in the grotto. Uh, by the time by the time the brick and wood came around, I was I would go every once in a while, but I was usually most of the time in New York. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to love Lemoore's and I loved the the anthrax in Norwalk. I never went to one in Stamford, but yeah, I, I, I was like young enough, but old enough to appreciate that punk scene at that time. So what about Faith and Katie? Were you, I know um, one of you was in the area at that time. Were you, were you able to uh, go to any of these, that club? I think it's before my time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I we're think... both millennials. Okay. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> I think, I think the brick and wood opened the year Faith was born possibly. Oh, that's funny. All right. Oh, well, yeah. 87? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> you know, at, after looking at you, I said, yeah, okay, they're, they're too young for this. So <laughs> let's talk about the New Haven Clock Company. It was um, started in 1844, according to my research. Yeah. And it cons- how many buildings did it consist of? Well, there was, there was the, 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 what was the four buildings, there's three now, but the four buildings where the factory is now, right next door. And then there was a walkway going across the street. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was a massive complex. It, it was for almost a hundred years the largest clock company in the world. Yeah. Well, I so. saw I saw in your uh, your trailer they had a was it Rita Hayworth was doing ads for it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean it was. I mean New Haven clock and New Haven watches were, you know, the Timex of their day. I mean uh, uh, Chauncey Jerome, who was the person who basically founded the company, was it was best known for being able to bring timepieces to the masses. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, from what I remember, he had something to do with Bristol as well. Chauncey Jerome. That, well, that's where he started. That's okay. where his first company, his first um, factory was in Bristol and then it all burned down and he moved everything to New Haven. Right. Now who is Hiram camp? Hiram camp was, is the considered the father of American or modern day American football. And he was the, president of the clock company for a while there i don't remember what years off the top of my head but he's in he's mentioned in the in the film as well yeah from what i saw it was um it was chauncey's nephew but yeah yeah and then um so what happened to jerome's business in 1856 uh it, most likely I, I i i'm bad with dates and and this has been like i said sort of on the back burner i'm yeah. going to guess that was when that he got involved with uh uh my god the, the circus guy whose name I'm completely Barnum, E.T. Barnum and sort of went, he sort of went belly up. Yeah, that's it. The majority of the film though, doesn't look so much on the clocks. It looks on after the clock company closed and this building took on, I mean, it was home to the largest art show in New Haven history, the 1984 art show, the most infamous party in Yale history, the sex ball. Um, Let's let's stop right there. Let's talk about that. Uh, every every year, the School of Architecture would have an annual ball. It's it's I guess it's a big thing with architecture schools. Not being an architecture, I don't know. I'll I'll take their word for it. And this this one year, they decided to uh, move it off campus to this empty building and have what was called a sex ball. And uh, yeah, it it is in it like like it it's its memory lives you know forever at, at Yale. I mean, people still talk about this party. Um, it was also, I mean, yes, tons of bands played there. Every band in New Haven seemed to practice there. There was a mime troupe that lived there. There was at least two murders. One guy burned to death on the uh, fire escape at one point when there was a fire. Um, the cockfighting rings. There was a cockfighting ring. Um, my God. Yes, there was a, 
uh, there was a DEA uh, bust of this. The, the one entire floor was growing uh, was used as a pot growing facility. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just it's and and numerous strip bars. There was an under uh, underground after hours club. Um, there was a coffee shop, which there was a furniture store. There was, I mean, it, this build, these, this building had so much life. And I think that's what sort of interested me that, that when people look at these boarded up buildings that they see in, especially in New England, everywhere, these old factory buildings that instead of trying to tear them down, try to reuse them because there's still a lot of dreaming and there's a lot of life left in these buildings, even if they are ghosts. Well, all the businesses you just mentioned, what kind of time span was that? Over a hundred years? I mean, no, what... no. Most of those businesses, the the clock company sort of went belly up in the late fifties, early six. In by the nineteen six mid nineteen sixties, yes, started becoming everything else. And uh, but most of the stories we're covering pretty much started in late seventy nine eighty. So and not, they didn't really that, last that long then, huh? That no, area. no. Everything just kept going quickly. <laughs> you know what's funny i did all my research on the clock factory this is way more interesting than the things you're telling me about i can't wait to see oh yeah the that's factory. yeah the, the, the actual clock factory i hate saying this the actual clock factory and the making of clocks takes up less than five minutes in the film <laughs> that's it's like it's it's just yeah okay they sold a lot of clocks and watches i and no offense but the the interesting stuff is you know yeah bring on bring on bring on dennis dean talking about the, the strip bar wars that that's fascinating bring on the sex party strip bar wars yeah it's a, i'm enjoying this <laughs> where did you uh, you know what impresses me most about your documentaries i've seen several of them plus some, some of your movies we'll talk about later on but is the amount of research that you put into the how many people do you have doing the research is there just you me and usually one or two other people. It's not a lot of people. It's a it's we keep the crew very small. I mean, when we're filming at Best Video, it's me, Faith, and Katie, and we're doing a three camera shoot with lav and overhead sound and lights and wow. Yeah. So, so Katie and Faith, when did you two become involved with the? Uh, what were we thinking? Films. Um, I think I'm. I think uh, like the next few days is probably my one year anniversary. Yes. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, happy anniversary. We'll be getting a new car, by the way. It's being dropped off. That's your. Yes. yes. Are you hiring at all, Gorman? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get involved in this. <laughs> what about you, Faith? Uh, I believe I got involved in, it was in June? Mm -hmm. Yeah. June so... 8th. You walked oh, up to me. Oh, wow. Well, I, it, was a it was a screening. I was right. I remember the date. Right. Okay, June 8th. So uh, I'm one of the last ones. <laughs> So how many people all together do you have with this company? Uh my God, all together yeah. under 10. Okay. So right now yeah. it's just the three of you working on these three documentaries. Uh no, well, uh Faith is only working on uh, yes. uh video. video and possibly the powder ridge. Okay, well, uh, we're gonna get to that next. Yeah, and and Katie's sort of helping on all of them, doing a lot of Katie's amazing on uh doing web stuff so yeah i sort of hand that gleefully over to katie yeah so that's another one is that just gonna be coming out whenever like whenever you could outer ridge uh no no not yeah. outer ridge oh. the uh, clock company i'm hoping we finish the clock factory this year okay yeah because i as long as the actual sale takes place uh i mean as long as they have an ending it'll it'll be finished this year because it, it's pretty close yeah yeah. And uh, 
Did you ever have any trouble trying to get the footage, maybe like the rights to it? Like a lot of different, um, I'll give you an example. I just interviewed Randy Schmidt. He did a documentary entitled uh, Karen Carpenter Starving for Perfection. And he was telling me that Richard Carpenter was giving him a lot of trouble trying. So he, he didn't want this release. He didn't want that. He didn't want that. So he, was, he had to go around that so he can use some of the footage. Did you have any issues, not only with this documentary, but some of the other documentaries, especially where I want to talk about some of your music documentaries later, but do you have that kind of issue? I, I've never really had a bad issue because, I mean, uh, I, I understand the fair use laws really well, so I can okay. always go that way if I, if I need to be. But if I'm doing a documentary, usually on an, a, someone who's alive and kicking and, you know, and, and well, I usually get them to sign off on everything. Yeah, no, I think I saw in an interview when I was doing my research on you, you, you said you have some pretty good lawyers. Uh, <laughs> well, that, I mean, in terms of in terms of fair use, we have the people who uh, argued the fair, uh, basically wrote the uh, the doctrine. I mean, they argued fair use in front of the Supreme Court and won. So, yeah, yeah those are those. Are, that's the that's the team I go with. Let's Donaldson and Califf. So that's a great team to stick with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So now I want to talk about this. There's another one. I've gone to Powder Ridge so many times. I cannot believe I never even heard of this. It's called uh, Powder Ridge. It's the the biggest festival that never happened. Sex, drugs, and no rock and roll. Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, this is a story that sort of just okay. I, how we found it. My 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 wife's father was a state cop his entire life, and after he passed, we were driving through on down 91 and we saw the signs for the state police museum and chris said can we just stop and i said yeah all right sure i always i i like any kind of museum because especially the smaller ones you never know what you're going to find so while she's looking for pictures for of her dad i'm just walking around and i see these gorgeous framed black and white photos of these hippies on a hill and it looks like woodstock and i'm like what is this and chris says don't you remember my dad said he directed traffic at this festival when he was a rookie cop and I, I hadn't remembered so we started talking about it and we're looking into it and I'm like okay this might make a nice short and then as we start peeling back the layers of this onion we're we're, we're not just finding more onion we're finding bags of onions <laughs> underneath the layers um I mean there's mob involvement there is uh the, the Hartford current blessed her little hearts uh they wrote a five pay a five piece front page every day for Monday through Friday, massive story on Powder Ridge, and virtually all of it was lies. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so all of the all of the information that's out there on Powder Ridge, for the most part, is wrong. Uh, you know, and so it it's it's a crazy story, and and I've been getting all of this old footage, Super Eight footage. Uh, we have access to thousands of old uh, images and we've interviewed we've interviewed already 75 people that were either there or involved with it um it's a fascinating story it's a tough one to raise money for though so i'm 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 probably going to try to launch another powder ridge uh, uh kickstarter indiegogo as well pretty soon well, you know, when you do start that, please share that link with me. I will share it with everybody, all my friends. I want to, I want to see this being made. I saw that four-minute trailer that you put online, and I, I, I didn't want it to end. I said, "Oh my God, this is great!" I mean, all the all the footage you have, I had no idea any of this happened. But let's talk about it. You, so you mentioned I saw it in the trailer. It said mafia involved. It was at Powder Ridge, which is Middlefield, Connecticut. It's a ski resort area. 
And it was it was 1970. That was supposed to be between July 31st and August 2nd, 1970. Right. And why was there an injunction put? Why didn't there they? An injunction. I mean, there. Are, well, there there are so many like reasons as to why the injunction went through. Yeah. Um, one was that the town felt that it, that it could not handle that many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was supposedly an agreement for only 18,000 tickets to be sold. The promoter printed 50,000 tickets. However, they most likely were printed three or four times with the same numbers. Oh, man. So there are potentially 150 to 200,000 tickets sold for this. Um, there were, the infrastructure was certainly not there. It would have been even worse in terms of a crowd than Woodstock. And so the town was really the town was also it the town is really conservative mm-hmm. and taken to that also this, some of the stuff that's never talked about is that the town hated Lou Zemmel Lou Zemmel who owned Powder Ridge at the time was a known communist uh to the point where if you look up Zemmel versus Rusk he fought the right to go to Cuba all the way to the Supreme Court and Rusk was Dean Rusk the Secretary of State at the time uh-huh. uh he was also a huge supporter of the Black Panthers I don't think the conservative town really appreciated that. And when um, uh, the the famous uh, uh, trial of the Black Panthers in May of 1970, the body of the person who was uh, murdered um, was dumped right near Powder Ridge. So not only, yeah, so the, the, the town was not happy about this. And of course, Zemmel, instead of staying away from it, allows the Black Panthers to have a rally at his ski resort. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of racism. Um, it was, you know, a conservative town in 1970. And it was very much that what you saw with the protest in the Vietnam War, the hippies versus the man, so to speak. You know, what's funny about the Black Panther. I was doing my research in this and there's a comedian, Louis Black. I'm not sure if all mm-hmm. three of you know who he is, but he he has an autobiography and it's called Nothing Sacred. And in that, he talks about this. He was at the festival and he said yes. that he's, when um, there was a fiery speech from a Black Panther of the Milton New Haven, Connecticut contingent, which happened to coincide with a thunderstorm. Black theorizes that under the effects of hallucinogens, many attendees probably thought that the Black Panther was actually causing the storm. And many began experiencing bad trips after that. The funny thing is, it's like we're talking. We we have him scheduled to be interviewed, but the funny thing about Lewis's black account is yes. that we can find no. I can find no corroboration. There was really? never a crane. None of the bands he talks about playing ever played. <laughs> so it's like he was really tripping. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, yeah, he was he was literally higher than a kite. Because uh, every single thing you wrote about, I've read over and over again, and I'm like, no one. I can find no cooperation for this whatsoever. Well, that's funny. Yeah, from what I heard, the only band that played was Melanie. She had a song called Brand New Key out, and she was one of the only people. I think she had some kind of ice cream truck, and she hooked it up. Well, she didn't. She snuck in with a 1010 Winds truck, a news truck from New Jersey. And um, when she got there, there the town and all their wisdom had cut the power. Um, And so... Uh, they Bill Hanley, who was the guy who in, basically invented stadium sound, he had done the sound at Woodstock, hooked her amplifier up to two generators from Mr. Softy ice cream trucks, and she was able to play a short set. 
Well, I want to go over just some of the bands. I mean, just three days. I mean, in, in between, I'm not even going to name all of them, but just some Eric Burden War, Sly and the Family Stone, Fleetwood Mac, Joe Cocker, Allman Brothers, Little Richard, Van Morrison, Janis Joplin, Chuck Berry, Savoy Brown, Grand Funk Railroad, Richie Havens, John Sebastian, 10 years after. I mean, there's, and there's so many more bands I didn't even list. That was $20. Been, yes. The $20, you get to see all those bands. That would have been a phenomenal festival. And uh, as you mentioned, maybe it was in your uh, trailer or what I was reading, it said 30,000 people finally made it, and there was no food, no entertainment, no adequate plumbing, plumbing, and at least 70 drug dealers. What can possibly oh, they, go wrong? Yeah, there was there was a lot of it was it really was drugs and sex and and with you know with other than Melanie, no rock and roll. And there were a lot of people who would say Melanie's not rock and roll. So yeah. yeah, were there any riots? No, the thing is, from everything I can tell and all the people I've talked to, it was very peaceful. It just basically became a really large party. Yeah. It, so the, the, um, obviously with 30,000 people, the police weren't going to be able to stop it. They just went in there and w did they try to, uh, did they bring in the SWAT team or anything just to get these people out? No, the police pretty much stayed on the perimeter. I think, okay. because, remember at that point in time, there was only 199 state troopers to begin with. So I, I think all the, the cops in the States would have been so, so outnumbered i mean it, it, you know that would have caused more problems they were actually smart by just staying out and i have a question for you regarding the promoters because from what i heard and you can correct me if i'm wrong the owner of the ski resort which you said everybody hated was trying he's unable to contact the promoter do you think the promoter knew he was trying to contact him? he's like i'm not even going to get involved in this just let whatever happens no, happen. that, by that point because of the injunction the promoter knew that if he had shown his face at powder ridge he would have been arrested Ah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that had a lot to do with the, the injunction and the judge. I mean, yes, was the promoter mob connected? Mm -hmm. More or less. Uh, everything was in cash. There were literally no books kept. Uh, every single person I talked to said, yes, I was, you're never going to guess how I was paid. $25,000 in a large paper bag or $20 bills. Oh my God. Every single person was paid that way. And I heard something about Swiss bank accounts as well. So a lot of the money was supposedly going to Swiss bank accounts. Yes. Was were there after this was all said and done? Were there any arrests? Not yeah, the well, people being there, but the promoter wise. The or promoter, the promoter was the promoter was finally arrested. He went to jail for four years. Yeah. Regarding this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was mainly because uh, not paying back the concert goers was the main reason. Oh wow. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. like the yeah, for four years, I'm sure like there was a lot more maybe behind it, but that's that was the charges that he received for four years. Well, yeah, but it was also done by this by a I'm not gonna say he was crooked, but I don't not yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. say he was straight either. Um uh the New York State's attorney. And I think that it, you know, it was an election year and it looked really good to put away some guy who was ripping off kids. Did you interview Dr. William? I think it's pronounced. No, he's, he's passed away a long time ago. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure of the age, but he was saying that a drug crisis on August 1st saying Woodstock was a pale pot scene. This was a heavy hallucinogen scene. That was his quote. And then it was, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely heavy with the acid and electric Kool-Aid uh, and LSD. I mean, there was, that was the, the those were the drugs. Yeah. Well, he said that there was um, more bad trips at Powder Ridge per capita than any other music festival that he ever worked at. So, 
But maybe I mean, that's what, maybe that's what kept the people calm. <laughs> maybe that's why they weren't riding. They, they were so mellow. I mean, they had nothing else to do. That's the problem, you know. Well, speaking of drugs, can you tell me what the electric water was? <laughs> oh, and the electric Kool-Aid was usually just like bottles of Kool-Aid and people would just throw whatever yeah. they wanted into it. My favorite story, though, was this like two foot long joint that people started rolling with newspapers and everyone was just throwing pot and more into it. And they ended up using Aunt Jemima pancake syrup as the thing to steal the joint and it was just this massive joint that was just being passed down the hill that is hilarious all right so for faith and katie what was the most surprising fact um doing the research in this documentary that you found out they weren't really involved in the research oh no. they weren't okay no no forget that yeah. question I was saying, but just hearing from it from gorman yeah. i think the fact that martin scorsese was involved was probably that's right Oh, that's right. Fascinating bit for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, there was going to be a documentary made on this at the time. We interviewed Bill Jersey, who was the Academy Award nominated director, and uh, Martin Scorsese was his PA. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so what happened with that? That was just put in the back burner and he never got back to it? They, the, 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 the mobsters one day show up and say, we want all the footage, and no one knows where it is. So I'm guessing so much time has passed. You're not have to worry about the mafia anymore, do you? I don't think. I don't think so. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, 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 I think they were very low level as well. You know. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. So let's talk about that one. When do you see this coming out? Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> I love the fact. I mean, you have three, not just small documentaries. These are three huge documentaries all going on at once. You have all this thing, and, and you every time I've never seen a bad movie slash documentary by you at all i mean it's so much research done so interesting there's so many great guests did you did you have any problems for this one anyway tracking people down because it was powder so yes with powder i mean it's been a slow burn of like you interview someone and they say hey i have a friend who was there or uh a lot of it has come from facebook and posting on these weird pages of old connecticut bands and you post a picture and something and people all of a sudden start talking and yeah. That's where I found a lot of people. And where'd you get all that, the, the eight millimeter footage from? That was from a number of different sources. You know, uh, one, you know, people just reaching out to me and saying, Hey, my dad was there and he's got these reels of film. Do you want them? Wow. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I, I just want I read this and I just want to go over it for my uh, viewers because somebody said, here's the difference between Woodstock and Powder Ridge. They said at Woodstock, it was gentle euphoria, huge grins, smiles and exchange v signals they said powder ridge looked like a major the major pastime was shuffling walks around along paved roads by grim-faced young men and women that looked remarkably similar to old people moving slowly along the boardwalks of rockaway or Atlantic city so a huge contrast there yeah except that they're they also are woodstock was not the peace and love oh, I that we have been led to believe Woodstock had a lot of problems. There was one point at Woodstock where th they thought the like half the audience was going to get electrocuted because of uh, uh, exposed electrical wires going under the, sh the the stage under that mud pit, you know, yeah. where everyone was just you know. So I mean, Woodstock had multiple problems, but they were they they had enough money to hide them because of you know the movie and so forth. This. I don't think this is any, you know, any worse by any stretch, except that the kids were bored. They had nothing. I mean, you know, 
the, the, the town made a huge mistake by not allowing the festival to proceed. Yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, the, the Palace Theater in Waterbury, I remember there was a lot of efforts of people not wanting the palace to open up because they were so worried about, oh my God, the traffic's going to be so bad and, and nobody's going to be able to come in and out and it's going to be so crazy. The wrong type of people are going to be running, coming into town. The place is great. It has so many great shows there. I've never really seen any major problems. And I think, as you said, it would have probably been the same thing there. People would have went, enjoyed the concert and just left. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's... They were just, you know, they were they were afraid of what they saw with Woodstock. But also remember, you also then after Woodstock had Altamont, you had Charlie Manson. You had, it was it was a very turbulent time to say the least. I can't remember the name of it. You might be able to refresh my memory. There was a documentary, and it was one of the first times. I think it was the first time it was ever shown. They call it the Black Woodstock. It was in Harlem around the same time, 1969. Stevie Wonder was there. Um, Gladys Knight and the Pips, all these great bands. And it was, I wish I could have. Was this the one made by Questlove? I think so, yeah. Do you remember I the name? Remember, I don't remember the name off the top of the head, okay. but I, yeah, great film. Okay, I was going to say, that's another, I mean, I didn't write that down because I just thought of it right now. But that was another great festival. And, and that, I'm not sure if if they were sort of like with Woodstock, their their memories weren't as you know maybe they took out they left out the bad parts where maybe there were more riots but it seemed like everybody there was just having a good time they were so peaceful they're having fun but you know who knows what what wasn't shown well i mean that's just you never know you know i mean um but in but he i mean he did a really nice job with that so yeah, yeah. That was, that was, I loved, I saw it three times. I, I want to see it again. But yeah, they, they were saying 30 of the 48 major festivals planned for 1970 were canceled, usually due to swift materializing local opposition. So there was a right. lot of people saying, we don't want this in our area. Not in my backyard. That basically, that was it. That was it exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, that's those three documentaries. I could definitely can't wait to be, I'm going to be renting, buying, watching them numerous times. So, uh, so the event obviously was never rescheduled. No, no, they tried. They tried to move it first to Yankee Stadium, then to uh, JFK Stadium down near DC, and mm -hmm. never could get it done. What happened there? Why couldn't it be done? Uh, the, the 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 town. Uh, well, I mean, in Yankee Stadium just laughed it off, and supposedly Spiro T. Agnew, who was the vice president at the time, shut down any thought of it coming to Washington. Wow. That's right. All right, so I want to go back a little bit to Gorman Bouchard, the early years, because <laughs> I find, <laughs> can you remember this voice? We're going to play a game, but this is your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you began writing music reviews for the Waterbury Republicans. So how long did you do that for? Maybe three or four years, I think. Yeah, that was like, that was one of my first jobs. I was that and a video store were the two things I was doing. Yeah. Um and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I enjoyed it because it was like, it basically got me into a lot of free concerts. Oh yeah. That's like me. I was an, in, I used to be in radio and I was an intern at WHCN, which is the rock now. And I, the dark, we can't pay you, but we'll give you all the free CDs and all the free concert tickets. I saw everything. So I, I, I love being an intern there. So I want to talk about how taking uncredited classes on Alfred Hitchcock and Charlie Chaplin helped launch your film career. Uh, well, I mean, I dropped out of, I was going to Western Connecticut State. I dropped out of college because I uh, couldn't get through English 101, of all things. Um, and I just, I started working for paper. I was working for this video store. I was just doing a lot of like jobs and things that I liked. And, but I was going to New York 
incessantly to see concerts. And I would always stop at this little um, Agendaz shop on 8th Street, 8th and McDougal. And they had a, they would have a stack of these huge, you know, inch thick catalogs from the New School for Social Research. And at the New School, you could take uncredited courses um, for, you know, a song. I mean, like $140, you were getting the same class as the person who was going there and, you know, for actual credit. Um, and you participated in it. It wasn't like you were just sitting there watching it. And um, I always loved movies. So I took one called The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, taught by Donald Spato, who wrote a great book on Hitchcock. And um, then I took one on Chaplin. And then after that, I saw 16 millimeter film production. So I was like, this sounds interesting. And one thing led to another. And you were actually the first in your class to do a feature. Yes, which I never got credited for because the head of the department did not feel that horror films were real films. I really, and that film, for people who don't know, was Disconnected, which I saw and I, I loved it. Because uh, our mutual friend who sadly is no longer with us, Carmine Copabianco, he was in that movie as well, wasn't he? Yes, yes. And yes. also another friend of ours, I'm not sure if you're friends with him, but I've known him for years, Professor Murano. He used to own oh my God. records. Yeah, he's he's in my first he's mentioned in my first book. I mean, uh, he's the best. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I he was the one who handed me my first replacements uh, wow. record when I walked in. And I remember I would go in on new release day, and he would always have a stack and said, "This is what you're buying this week," and he was almost always right. Oh yeah, I used to go there when it was on Bank Street when it was Cheapskate Records. I remember it well. And then I remember that, it well. He's another one. There, um, he would be another great documentary because, like, the whole fire thing. I mean, unfortunately, mm. what happened with Stilson Avenue, how what happened to I, I felt so bad for the guys. Like, I said, Professor, you have the worst luck, but he always bounces right back, which is great. But with Carmine, I, well, I'm mad about this too because I actually interviewed him before he passed away, and the company I was working with lost couple of my interviews and I'm so angry that was one of the interviews I lost because he and I were talking about movies and everything. we mentioned you many times in the in, the, in our my interview but the one that really became a cult classic was Psychos in Love I remember that was the first one I saw of you and Carmine years mm. ago and that actually got you uh, didn't that got you a production deal didn't it uh unfortunately yes, <laughs> yes. why do you say unfortunately uh it got me a production deal with the wrong company uh, uh, a company that I then I went on to make made two films for which if I could somehow make them disintegrate and destroy every known copy on the face of the planet and every word ever written about them, I would push that button in a heartbeat. Can I mention the name of the company or no? Oh, no, Empire. I, yeah, okay. I, I, I detest them and I detest Charlie Band. And uh, yeah, one of the true scumbags of, of, of that, that period of film. Oh, yeah. really? So I didn't realize Charlie Band was a part of that. Oh yeah, he was. That was his company. Yeah. Oh wow. Because now we, you mean Full Moon, Charlie Band, right? Yes. Well, Full Moon came after Empire. Yeah. Empire was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's funny because I, I I love Full Moon movies. I didn't realize that he was a part of Empire, but it's yep. interesting. So it's like, but that it, it sort of worked in your favor in a way because that forced you to become an author. Or not forced well, you, but yeah. I sort of like pushed you in that direction, I should say. I was just, I was so tired of working with scumbags that I basically said enough. And yeah, I, I, I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I decided I still wanted to tell stories. So I started writing. Yeah. Well, this is this next thing I'm going to say is really impressive. So in the 90s, you wrote four books, several screenplays. How many options did you have? 26 total and, and nothing got made. 
<laughs> but you still get paid for that, right? Even though you still I get paid nicely. Money. Yes, yes, but but it gets frustrating after ten years of, of you know what do you do for a living? I write for Hollywood, and but what'd you write? Nothing that you've seen. Because that was when Hollywood, the '90s, was the golden period of writing, where Hollywood would just throw money at you. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned before, another interview I saw is that was every company but Disney. Yes. Wow. Every yeah, every major studio but Disney, I had an option with at some point. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned earlier Professor Murano and the replacements. I'm going to fast forward to 2008, and and how a documentary on the replacements helped jumpstart your career making documentaries. Yeah, it was actually to the late 2009. Okay. And um, uh, a woman named Hansi Oppenheimer was was um, working on a documentary about the replacements. I was actually in the documentary because I had mentioned them in my first book, The Second Greatest Story Ever Told. And she, I get an email out of nowhere. I think I was actually on vacation and down in Florida. And she basically said she lost her editing suite. She lost her cut. She lost everything she just had her her basically her tapes her original footage and she couldn't finish the film but she said but you can i'm like all right i looked at the footage i didn't really like her footage i didn't like where she was going with it but i loved the idea of doing a documentary on one of my favorite bands uh i loved her title color me obsessed because it was based off of one of their songs color me impressed um and i said yes i'll do this but i'm completely changing the scope of the documentary and I basically told her, it's like, you'll have producer credit, but that's it. You have no, I mean, it's like, I, I, at that point in my life was, I was no longer at the point where I was listening to anybody. If I was doing something, I was doing it my way, yep. period. And um, I think, cause I had just gotten burnt so many times at that point. And uh, yeah, so it, that sort of launched, you know, the first document, that was the first documentary. You know, it's funny. I hear a lot of people say that, like, when I just stopped caring, that's when I came out with my best work. <laughs> when everything, well, there's nothing else to lose. And that's when I came out with this. And that started me on my road to success. I hear yeah, that I, story so many times. I don't know if it's, I don't know if, I don't think it stopped caring. I think it stopped refusing to deal with yeah. the, the assholes in the business, mm -hmm. of which there are many. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of documentaries, I have to discuss this one. I thought you were going to say, and speaking of asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I can okay. have plenty of assholes you and I both know. That we, yes. <laughs> for part two on Claw's Corner. There you assholes. go. Uh, no, I want to talk about, um, since you and I both live in Connecticut and people are watching, pizza is a big thing in Connecticut. Everybody says New Haven has the best pizza. So I want to talk about your documentary, which came out in 2019, Pizza, yes. a love story. Yeah, um, that took 11 years. Uh, as my two cohorts would attest to, I am a pizza snob, to oh, say yeah. the least. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I tr I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll back me up on this. I will argue... To the death that there are really only three pizza places. And that's Peppy's, Sally's, a Pete's, and Modern. A Beats. A Beats. A Beats. A Beats. And, okay, and, you have to get that and, right. A Beats. And Modern, a Beats. And, um, I, you know, those are the places that, to me, that make the only... If, my feeling is if you have not had at least one of their pies, you don't even have a clue as to what pizza is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it raises it up. It raises pizza up to Michelin star level. I mean, it's... No, it it's it's that good. And I think that, you know, uh, and that that really is why we made the film. I made it with a 
one probably my oldest friend dean falcone and um and and colin kaplan and we are miss dean and i especially are horrible pizza snobs it's just like don't i don't i'm go i go into all these cities and it's like oh you got to try our pizza and it's like i really don't <laughs> your pizza sucks i don't even need to try it to know that i mean i'm the kind of person i will walk into a place and look at the oven and walk out if i don't like the oven that's i don't even need to taste the pie i look at the oven and go that oven cannot make a good pie and i just walk out out of the three of the we just mentioned do you have a favorite i have a favorite pie at each one and it really depends on what kind of mood i'm in okay i mean if i want cheese i go to modern Mm -hmm. If I want that that gorgeous plain pie, you know, with no cheese, the tomato sauce pie, that's that's a Sally's thing. Yeah. Uh, I also love the potato pie at Sally's. And if I and I really, really love the summer special at Peppy's, the one with the chunks, chunks of tomato. They also have an amazing clam pie. Yes. I just, I just tried the clam pie over at Modern last weekend. So I, that was the one place I didn't go to. So I said, let me check out Modern before I do this interview. I had the clam. I loved it. But now, yeah. now that you just gave me some new recommendations, I got to check out. The modern in modern, the eggplant is the other go-to pie. All right, I'm gonna. All right, yes. so Faith, what about you? Uh, Sally's potato is definitely one of my favorites, and uh, modern's eggplant. All right, Katie, what was what was that concoction you guys made me oh. order that I wouldn't eat because it had too many toppings? Well, to answer the first question, I made Sally's fan first and foremost i also love the potato um at sally's but uh yeah faith and i wanted um clearly the cursed concept of three toppings on our pizza <laughs> i had <laughs> and, a literally uh, hole up across towards the pie yeah three topping pizzas um and but he did you know graciously cave and give us half with our yeah. three toppings. Oh. That was uh, very generous of him. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm still working with them, you know? He I'm, didn't fire us, so. No, yeah. no, no. <laughs> uh, so, so I want to go over just some of the stories. You had so many, I mean, such a great documentary and you. you had so many great stories. First of all, uh, what was Henry Winkler's connection to, how does he, was, how is he so familiar with New Haven Pizza? Uh, went to Yale Drama School. Oh, okay. Always love Peppy's. And the other one that was, uh, was well, there was, you had plenty of people in there, but Lyle loved it. I was surprised too. Like he, was that just from him playing his music in town? He, he plays in New Haven a lot. And the he said he never eats pizza on the road, but when he comes to New Haven, Peppy's. Yep. I have a friend, I don't know if you ever heard of his name, is Mike Z Livingston. He is involved in the music scene. He used to be a DJ at WNHU, then he, he books bands. But he was saying he works at the Oakdale now whatever it's called. And he said that um, Aerosmith one time wanted Peppy's, so, no, Sally's, sorry, Sally's. So he had their person that worked with them, wherever um, city they were in, go to New Haven, pick up 15 Sally's pizzas and go bring them back to where they were. Similar to the, um, you had a story with Michael Bolton in Paris like that. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of stories. Um, yeah. uh, Koppelik and Finkel, who were the big promoters back in the day and, you know, and, and, and still are to an extent, uh, though yeah. I think they've separated um still provide you know uh sally's and and uh, to a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh visiting acts what i found funny was the story that you mentioned after documentary was over it was about al gore and bill clinton said come on open up sally's for us what was sally's reaction 
Well, that, they they got Flo on the phone, and the press secretary called and said, uh, you know, the president and vice president would like to come and have lunch. And Flo was like, we don't open for lunch. And the, and she said, no, you don't understand. The president and vice president of the United States. And Flo said, we don't open early for anybody. And I love that. That was, but that was the old school Sally's where it was sort of like visiting your crazy old relatives. A lot of people didn't like that. I thought it was great. I thought it added to, it added to the flavor somehow. Oh, no, I I agree with you on that one. And one thing I was, well, there's a couple things I was surprised of from this documentary. One was the Peppy Sally's connection. What is that? Uh, That Sally was Frank Peppy's nephew. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Salvatore is his real name. And I mm-hmm. guess his uh, Frank's sister, Philomena? Yes. Bought it. No, Frank for... Philomena is Frank's wife. Okay. But wasn't didn't his sister buy it for Sally or Salvatore? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. You're talking about a different film. Okay, yes. She, she bought it because um, they weren't old enough to have get a liquor license in her name. Okay, yeah. That's what I thought I'd heard in the documentary. I never realized the connection between the two of them. And then I love the fact, I mean, so many pop culture references, the uh, secret phone number even got into a Simpsons episode. That's funny. <laughs> I mean, and the thing, it was real, though. I mean, you yeah. would call that number and you'd have a reserved table. Who was, I can't remember now, who was the, I, think he was, I don't know if he was an actor, director, music, whoever it was, had that secret number. And they said he was really cool about it. He didn't really use his clout to get in there, but he would say, hey, Sally, can you open up for me? Or can I come in? Do you remember who that was? That was uh, that was Bolton who was talking about the secret number. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, Mike yeah. Bolton. Yeah, and he's for people who don't know, he's from Connecticut too. He's been a musician. Grew uh, up on Worcester Street. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one, let's talk about how the owner of Modern bro- helped break the Bambino curse. <laughs> well, we all knew that the Red Sox were never going to win the World Series ever, and then they finally changed their allegiance of, to pizza from Pepe's to Modern, and somehow they win. So you tell me, was it because they were they had the best players that year or because they changed their allegiance? I think we know the answer to that question. Yeah. I think I think it's step right there with that because we, yeah. we know I know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> another one I watched recently, another documentary which I loved was uh Who is Lydia Lovelace? And you mentioned how how long were you um on tour yeah, with her? That was that, oh, I was on tour with her for a while. Uh yeah. um because we just had fun. We would just bring the movie to different locations, different cities. And she would play, we'd play the movie. She'd do a live set. We'd do a Q and a basically being drunk and obnoxious. And uh, it, it was, it was just always, she was, she was great to, to be working with. I mean, I adore Lydia. That, that she has one of those voices that can sing the proverbial phone book. Well, it's funny when she was singing, and I don't know if they mentioned this in the documentary, she sort of had a Stevie Nicks vibe. A, a little bit, yeah, yeah. But but I, I I that voice is just so powerful. I'm I've seen her fill a room, you know, ten feet back from a microphone with not you know no instruments playing, just like hitting a note, and it's just she's amazing. So where did you discover her, and what prompted you to do a documentary on her? I was after three rock docs with uh, about male bands. I really wanted to look at sexism in the music industry, and I was looking for the next person, and I fell in love with her second album somewhere else. And I, and I, then I saw her live. I saw her live at Fairfield theater company opening for cracker. Um, and she, she just blew me away. Just absolutely blew me away. So in 2014, she was named new artist. You need to know, 
by Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, what did she ever have that major breakthrough? No, no, unfortunately not. I mean, uh, I think she sort of stayed on the cultish kind of side, and uh, you know, sometimes that's that's you know, I I I'm a I'm a big believer in that most really great bands are way too good for the general public. I mean, the general public wants McDonald's. Yes. They don't want, you know, something really special. They want it to all be generic and boring. Mm -hmm. And so I hate saying this, but it's like, usually if it sells a lot, it's not really good. No, I, you know, I, with the exception being Taylor Swift, but yeah, <laughs> what I like about her is that she seems like the most genuine person I met. I, like I, I, where I work, somebody came in who does sound for her and he had he he said she she gave him a hundred thousand um, dollar bonus just for working with her, and I and she gave it to all of her employees. So I love the fact she seems like such a nice person, and I'm really happy for her success. In a, but it's just yeah, it's I mean, but then again, like when she's breaking all these records, when the ticket costs. $800 for the cheap seats. Of course, you're going to break records when the Beatles and Giant Cash were playing for $5. Yeah, well, I mean, no, it's, it's you know, it's not only that. It's also the, the, the some of the, I, like, I would always, I, I went to see her in May at, at Gillette Stadium, but I was also watching just the, the aftermarket tickets, the StubHub tickets, and the show had already started. The, um, Opening acts were on. Taylor was 20 minutes from coming and the ticket prices did not go down. Yeah. And we we're like, Norma, I have picked up tickets like minutes before a show on StubHub for yeah. a fraction of what their cost should be. And these $250 tickets were still $1,500, 2000 yeah, wow. So it, the demand for her to see her live was just, but it was also a truly amazing show. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I was gonna see it in the theater. I didn't go see it. My I had friends that saw her live and said she was phenomenal. But I know she puts on a, a great show from just what I saw in the different clips of uh, online. That I I wouldn't mind seeing her. But getting back to Lydia, though, you know what she reminded me of? Did you ever hear of Henry Rollins' "Get in the Van"? It's about his life in Black Flag. That's what watching your documentary made me. Feel. It was more like the whole that, country. Yeah. Okay, well, well, I'm sure you know who Henry Rollins is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so he did he. He actually won a Grammy for it. I think it was spoken word all about his life in Black Flag. And I was thinking when I was watching, it's more for her. It's like a folk country version of that. She gets in the van. She goes from town to town. All these different things happen. And she, it seems like she's another one. She put on a good stage show. Like at the end of, she, she used to get up on the, the the amp and jump off. And one time she missed. Yeah. Oh no. She was. She put on an amazing show. I mean. A lot of it was alcohol fueled, fueled back in the yeah. day, but um, I, they were a great rock and roll band. They really were. Well, speaking of great rock and roll bands, in 2021, you released Where Are You, Jay Bennett. I saw that one as well. That's all about the uh, Jay Bennett, who is best known as a member of the band Wilco from 1994 yes. to 2001. And I know you are a major fan of Wilco. I am. Um, I'm a major fan of Wilco's records with Jay Bennett. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I like the other. I, I enjoy seeing them live, but I, we've seen Wilco a bunch. We've seen Wilco 77 times or so at this point. Wow. So how did you become involved with that one? I, I That was another one that fell into my lap. Someone was making a documentary on Jay Bennett, and he had an eight-hour cut. And he came to me and said, I think you need to finish this movie. And I was just, I don't want to take on another movie. And then I started watching this footage, which is when I really loved the band, when they were a rock band. 
much more so than now. And I said, sure. For people who don't know, I mean, how talented this guy was. He played guitar, piano, banjo, organ, mellotron, bass, drums, synthesizer, harmonica, mandolin. And he also, he would pick up kids' instruments. Like if you listen to, especially Summer Teeth or Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, there are literally like toy instruments being used. Wow. And and throughout this documentary, you um, discussed the battles between him and frontman Jeff Tweedy. What was going Mm -hmm. on here? You think it was um, ego-fueled? You know, I mean, there it was. was, I think it was a little bit of drug and alcohol fueled. It was definitely it was always Jay's uh, Jeff's band, and you know, Jay was taking a big part of it. And I think that you know, it's it's a tough relationship to be in a band with someone. You know, I uh, I do think had they stayed together, I mean, when you the three albums that they put out were as good as any three records I think ever released by any band in the history of rock and roll. Mm including Rubber Soul, uh, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper. That's the quality of those three records. And had they continued, I think they would have gone down as the great writing duo of of, one of the great writing duos of all time. And what happened when he left the band? How was his solo career? His solo career was not great. I mean, mean, he put out some good material, but I don't think anyone cared, unfortunately. Uh, He produced a lot of stuff. But the big issue became where he started having a lot of hip problems uh, and he needed hip replacement. He was in like tons of pain. Uh, He started selling off all his vintage gear to sort of pay for it. And he was uh, he was uh, prescribed uh, fentanyl patches and one leaked and he died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that because from what I saw in the documentary, it was his health insurance said it was a pre-existing condition, so they wouldn't even From jumping cover on it. stage. They wouldn't cover it. Yeah. Oh my god! And it was right around that time. I want to say it was May two thousand nine. He sued Tweedy for a breach of contract, and that didn't go through because that right at, soon after that, that's when he put the patch on and it leaked. Right. So yeah, he. It seems like, I felt so bad because watching the interviews with his mother, with his brother, like even his brothers, they used. I really didn't have a relationship with him for so long he i know he was he, he had his own thing he was in a lot of pain he didn't want anybody to know and then his mother just seemed like one of the nicest most down-to-earth people and she was so proud of her oh, his mom his mom was great yeah yeah his mom was truly truly great such a tragic story and he was he was very young wasn't he he was like what, 40 or 50 something he was he was in his 40s yeah 40s okay yeah so that's what i thought yeah. uh, so was was that the uh was that the last documentary you released in 2021 Mm, no, the, I believe the one that came out after that was uh, because that, that came out on DVD in April of 22. Okay. And in um, December of 22, we put out uh, Old Friends, a documentary. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that one yet, but I did see that it was listed. And uh, for people who are watching now who maybe didn't see it, what's that about? That is about the Old Friends Cedar Dog Sanctuary. Mm hmm. Uh, it is a uh, one of the largest animal uh, sanctuaries on the planet, and one of the um, one of the most uh, um, I, it, they've, let's put it this way: they have the largest Facebook page of of any animal group, um, uh, massive following, and they moved literally from their house to the house next door to a garden center, and then eventually to this gorgeous state-of-the-art facility and was this something that piqued your interest or did somebody approach you and say i'd love you to uh, help well, me out with this documentary 
we sort of we sort of did a little bit on them on the previous animal doc um seniors a documentary mm-hmm. and um they uh they uh moved to a brand new place and the funny thing was okay so seniors premiered and at the premiere uh, michael and zena the owners of old friends said to me oh we're moving to a new location i said oh congratulations that's great and they said oh and it's only a mile away from the old one and we're going to close the roads down and we're going to have a parade of all the senior dogs marching from their old home to their new home and it was that was to me was kind of like damn it it's like how do i not film a parade of senior dogs so (laughs) i know which movie i'm getting at best video next (laughs) It's fun. That one is fun. I mean, it'll make you cry. It's, it won't make you cry like a dog named Gucci, yeah. but it'll make you cry. Yep. Do you think you'll ever go back to making movies, maybe not in the same vein of it, but like Psycho's not, not movie that's not a documentary, a feature? Do you think you go back to that? Maybe. Really? I, would al- I always wanted to make one more horror film, but I just, I, I, I haven't gotten a script that I've written that I love yet. You could be like Sam Raimi, who made Evil Dead and all these movies in the past, and then he went did sub Spider Man, Simple Plan, and then came, comes back and does uh, Drag Me to Hell. So you could do that. Yeah, I mean, one of these days, I, 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 I might. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy the documentaries because there's no actors, there's no sets. It's, it's, it's a, a much easier. Yeah. Now, are you still, are you still writing? Not much. I'm, I've been working on a book for forever. So one, maybe one of these days, I'll finish it. Now, just so for people who are interested, where can they find your books, your documentaries, your movies? The best website is whatwerewethinkingfilms.com. Uh, that's, but all of the films, I mean, if you just Google me, you'll find everything. Um, not to mention uh, Outer Ridge is powderridgedocumentary.com, best video, bestvideodocumentary.com. So everything has its own website. All right. So we've been talking for about an hour and a half. We covered the three documentaries that are coming out. We talked about some of your older ones. So between Faith, Katie, Gorman, is there anything you want to add before we go? No. No? Check out our Kickstarter on Friday. Yep. Which right right now is the 22nd. So the Friday, what's the date for this? Because this is going to be... Friday the 26th, the Kickstarter will go live. So January 26th. And once again, we're going to have this on the screen as you're talking, but where can people find that Kickstarter so they can donate money? Powder Ridge document. No, sorry. Wrong one. Best video. (laughs) Best video documentary.com. Too many damn movies. Yeah, I keep younger people around because my mind is long shot. So it's like, you know, they're always like correcting me. You know, after all this, I think it's time to get a pizza with three or four toppings. <laughs> Never four toppings. Oh my god! You're so, it's like toppings destroy the integrity of the pie. I will say that out loud. So that's how bad a snob I am. I'm I'm not a pizza topping person. Tell us how you really feel, Gorman. <laughs> really, one topping. That's it. That's yeah. Well, you know what. Faith, Katie, Gorman, it was so much fun having you on the show. I am very much looking forward to your the three upcoming documentaries. Like I said, best video, especially I go to that place all the time. I love the people there. I've seen so many movies I never would have even heard of if it wasn't for that place. I love the atmosphere. I love the culture. I love the bands they have there, spoken word, poetry. If you're in the Connecticut area, check it out when you can. And definitely go check out Gorman's upcoming work and especially the stuff he already has out, you will not be disappointed. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.
That wraps up the latest episode of The Claw's Corner. A special thanks goes out to Gorman Bouchard, Katie Boulding, and Faith Merrick of What Were We Thinking Films for taking time out of their extremely busy schedule to be a guest on my show. A huge thanks also goes out to editor extraordinaire of the award-winning Element Productions for always doing a superb job editing this show each and every week and making it available to all on YouTube. Thank you very much, John Bristol. I am also extremely grateful to Joseph Timothy Quirk and Rob Bull for all they do to make my show available on several Connecticut radio stations, as well as Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Audible, and iHeartRadio. Thank you both very much. And lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. Diaphragm again? Ha! We caught one. They're supposed to be weird. Oh, yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Living around for all the